one of the all-time favorite shows. And welcome to our very last Trick or Treat Thursday for the year. It's a sad day. It's been fun. It has been fun this time, hasn't it? Last time yeah. it was very fun as well. But I really liked looking into kind of the history of Ireland and all things spooky. I have to say in my ignorance, I had no idea like so much of Halloween all stems from like Irish and Celtic yeah. history and roots. Yeah. Yeah. We started it all, baby. <laughs> and one thing we have that is really good as well is our um, folklore. Um, and mm. everything surrounding kind of, we looked at the Banshee, we looked at the Leprechaun, but the one thing we didn't look at and we've saved to last is the Puka. So Puka is actually Irish for spirit um, or ghost. So when we were studying Irish in school, that would have been the word for ghost. Um, but I actually didn't know that this is kind of like a little spirit in itself. And it's a playful shape shifting spirit, often presented in the form of a cat, pig or a horse. It said, depending on its mood, it would bring either good or bad luck and played second fiddle to the leprechaun and the banshee. So, Emer. I have a little bit of a story for you. It's a folklore, an Irish folklore about the puka. Bring it on. Sit in and relax. So a puka or a puka is an evil spirit which inhabits bogs. It usually takes the shape of a shaggy haired, stout, evil smelling pony. <laughs> Some people say that it also takes the shape of a goat. It has a liking for lying in the path of an unsuspecting traveller. As the traveller approaches, it charges between the poor unfortunate's legs, lifting him onto his back. This is followed by a hair-raising gallop across the bogs, through thorny ditches, scratching the legs off the rider, who, for all his strength, cannot dismount. That is the most Irish sentence I've ever heard in a book, scratching the legs off the rider. It is said that the puka can race around all night long, up steep mountains, along small tracks and cliff edges with nothing but the sea below, terrifying the traveller who is usually abruptly dumped in some foul-smelling bog before the cock crows at first light. Now, once upon a time in Ireland, there was a man named Ton Dorney who farmed a large piece of land. The land was not only contained... A, the land not only contained a large bog, but it also contained one very mean puka. Tom started to improve around the bog and in time started to dig drains and reclaim the bog for farmland. This was all very well for Tom, but the puka was forced to move deeper and deeper into the part of the bog which could not be drained. The puka was raging about this and waited its chance to get its revenge for the draining for what is considered to be its bog. Again, very Irish, was raging. Raging. And all about the land. <laughs> Whoever wrote this part of the folklore book that I'm, I'm reading is about our age and is probably from Drogheda. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't long before the opportunity presented itself. Tom Dorney was a sociable fellow and often went visiting neighbours. 
one night at her very late visit to a close friend, Tom, deciding to take a shortcut cut across the bog, found himself on a badly kept path, which would which wound its way through the bull rushes. He was halfway across the bog when he came upon what looked like an old lump of hide lying in his path. As he bent down to pick it up, he was astonished when suddenly it leapt up off the path and dashed between its leg, his legs, lifting him up to the air. He knew right away that he had been caught by the puka. He tried to jump off the animal's back, but all the time the puka was leaping around, laughing an evil deep laugh. The two tore off at breakneck speed across the bog. The puka heading for even thicker and thornier bushes and galloping close to the stone walls so the poor Tom's legs kept scraping against the stones. The puka turned towards a steep cliff and charged at full speed towards the edge. Tom sat in terror and watched the edge getting closer. Then straight over the side, they flew, and for Tom, there followed a heart-stopping fall to a ledge running below. He was exhausted when, some hours later, the puka threw him into a thorny bush at the edge of the bog and disappeared into the night. Ouch. I know. <laughs> After all that, you're just thrown into a load of thorns. It's just like, see a bitch. Ugh. Tom Dorney sat there counting himself lucky to be alive and listening to the eerie chatter of hooves fading in the distance. Most people would have left the puka alone after an experience like that. And what's more, they would have avoided the bug after dark. However, Tom Dorney was a thick skinned character. Thick some. <laughs> he didn't made a fool of. So it was that some days later, he went to the forge and made a pair of silver spurs shapened into spikes. Then he fastened a riding crop with leather and fixed the ends with lumps of lead. Satisfied with his work, he strode off towards the bog in search of his quarry. He had not gone very far when he spotted on the path before him the puka lying in wait. Oh, sorry, he didn't stop, but started whistling. I'm walking towards the animal. Delighted to have another victim, the puka leapt forward and lifted Tom high into the air. Suddenly, the animal felt the first jab of the spurs on his flanks. He raced off down the road, screaming all the way while Tom stuck the spurs into his flanks as hard as he could and rained blows onto his head with the crop. The puka charged through the worst of the bog the thickest of hedges and steepest of cliffs and gorges but still Tom kept digging the spurs in and lashing him with the lead crop eventually with a scream of abuse the puka threw Tom off with his back and galloped off into the bog to tend his wounds from that day on Tom was never bothered by the puka Occasionally, however, as he walked home through the bog, he would hear the puka yell from behind the bull rushes, on Wilnyari Earth, which means, have you the sharp things on? A few years later, Tom Dorney was taking his stock to market to pay his landlord's rent on the farm. He had loaded up his mules with the produce of the farm and tied the cattle together to stop them straying off the path. 
He'd also tied a stick hazel, a stick of hazel to one of the mules to ward off evil spirits. This mule had two large bags tied over his back. One held grain, the other held butter. He had a long journey ahead of him, so he sat at the he set off at a brisk walk. The day was very hot, and Tom was glad when he came to a stream to cool off the animals and quench his thirst. He walked to the river bank and knelt to drink the water. He had not bothered to tether the animals because he were because they were drawn to the water. But as he knelt to drink, he saw in the water the reflection of the dreaded puka. When he looked up, he saw not a puka, but his cattle and all but one of his mules charging off across the fields, followed by the puka yelling encouragement. He watched in horror as the evil beast drove his fat animals over the edge of a cliff. Tom ran back to the remaining mule and grabbed the hazel stick from the bag. No sooner had he taken it off the mule than they charged after the other animals. Released from the safety of the hazel stick, it had fallen into the power of the puka. Tom Dorney lost everything he owned that day. When he returned home, the landlord evicted him from his cottage because he could not pay the rent. The puka had had his revenge oh. um, and not only that, but the curse of the puka fell on all the descendants of the Dorney family, making them poor traveling people forever. Oh, what a dick. What a dick. I'm kind of like, I don't know who I'm rooting for there. Thought Tom was a bit of a dick, but also the puka was kind of a dick. Puka started it and like the puka finished it. <laughs> he really did. And Tom All he was doing was he had gotten like gotten mm-hmm. back at him there, but no. 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 All he did was probably just have a few drinks in his neighbors and walk through the wrong area. And Pook is like, no, motherfucker. Not tonight, baby. <laughs> that was a great story. Gosh. No, I've never heard that before. Yeah. Our mythology is just crazy. Yeah, but it's like because we're Irish, you can just sense the Irishness of it. You, I could like see all that in my head as you were reading it. I really could. Yeah. Yeah. So I did something kind of similar to what we've done before, but I tried to find as different ones as possible, which there still is quite a lot in Ireland. And um, so I was only discussing with Grace. I'm like, did we discuss any of these last year? Because neither of us can remember. So if I happen to be repeating any ghost stories, apologies so i came across three haunted buildings or, or castles uh, so i'm just going to give you the wee story on each of them so i'm starting out with Lee castle in county offaly um so while it's probably not the only castle to claim the title of most haunted in ireland Lee castle's bloody and terrifying history certainly makes it a worthy candidate it's thought to have been built around 1250 and the castle's past is full of ferocious acts of violence, gruesome death and sinister happenings. The pall of darkness first descended on Leith Castle back in 1532 when the death of the chieftain Mulrooney O'Carroll led to a bitter and bloody feud over leadership of the clan. One day as one of Mulrooney's sons, Thaddeus O'Carroll, was saying mass in a ring above the Great Hall, his brother, one-eyed Tyg O'Carroll, I just love these nicknames. Of course. Yeah. He stormed into the room and stabbed his brother priest in the back on the altar while the rest of the family looked on in terror. 
The room now known as the Bloody Chapel still has a dark and oppressive atmosphere. Throughout the centuries, passersby have seen the window of the room light up suddenly late at night and a dark figure moving from window to window. In the 1600s, the ownership of Leith Castle passed to the Darby family, and it is one of the Darbys who is believed to have brought the most infamous and evil spirit to Leith Castle. In the early 1900s, the occult was a fashionable pastime for the gentry, and Mildred Darby began to dabble in the black arts at the castle with terrifying results. She, I love the way it's like, oh, we have nothing to do tonight. What will we do, darling? <laughs> Want to dabble in the occult? Let's pop out the old board there, Mildred. But yeah, it was I so like fashionable. <laughs> There's think, something between us at the moment. We can't quite communicate. Get the Ouija board. Let's not talk to each other. Let's talk through our spirits. Let my spirits talk to your spirits. Well. But, but it really was. It was just like, I think it also, I was looking into that once before. It's like when you had your mediums and all that really like in the late 1800s uh, into the 1900s, it was also, I think there were so many wars happening around Europe and England was in a lot of them as well that you had mediums basically because so many young men were dying and it was mothers and wives and all that wanting. So it's kind of, also, I think it was just people were into spooky stuff. The Victorian period is very spooky. Like, really into it. Oh, yeah. Like, it was so fashionable. It was so, you weren't a part of the good clique unless you had tried something of the dark arts. Yeah. So our... To deal. Oh, yeah. So our Mildred here, um, she is credited with unleashing a dark and evil elemental spirit to the castle. She herself described her ordeal in 1909 article for the journal Occult Review. I was standing in the gallery looking down at the main floor when I felt somebody put a hand on my shoulder. The thing was about the size of a sheep, thin, gaunting, shadowy. Its face was human, to be more accurate, inhuman. Its lust in its eyes, which seemed half decomposed in black cavities, stared into mine. The horrible smell, 100 times intensified, came up into my face, giving me deadly nausea. It was the smell of a decomposing corpse. So she brought some shit into that house. Yeah. So I've never been to Leap Castle, but it's actually, yeah, there's like, just, I think we had this last year where we were going to do our haunted tour of Ireland and then COVID still decided to not relent and so we we still have it on our plans to do our haunted tour of Ireland so I'll definitely be adding this one to the list I would love to I just think it'd be really cool like for us to tie it in it would be whenever we can and be like things are starting to free up a little bit but we're you still just have to be so aware of things and what's the entry policies to a lot of places but there are so many spooky places in Ireland yeah there really is and I think this kind of series has definitely made me like I always knew that we kind of had like the Celtic like myth and legend and it was all but it's just really cool like mm. we really like there's a reason where we live is called the ancient east do you know what oh I mean? yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, we should we at least try that to begin with and then work our way out definitely the Abbey of the Black Hag in County Limerick. I imagine that if I was in an apartment with some girls, that's what it would be called. <laughs> so 
We have St. Catherine's Augustinian Abbey, founded in 1298, was one of the few known medieval convents in Ireland. The remains of the Abbey Church and refectory still exist today, their haunting presence in a secluded valley southeast of Shanagolden, our lasting reminder of the Abbey's dark and sinister past. It is believed that the last abbess in charge of St. Catherine's practiced witchcraft at the Abbey, bringing death and bad fortune to the local population. When Pope Martin V ordered the Abbey's closure on account of the conduct of the prioress, the other nuns left the area. The malevolent abbess was left to live out her days in the damp, deserted abbey. Due to the depraved conditions and her twisted practices, over time her skin blackened to such a degree that it gave rise to the local name for the convent, the Abbey of the Black Hag. I just say she probably didn't wash herself. Yeah, look, my, I'm right there with her. I'm hey, chairs. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't imagine you holding off for like decades without sharing. Look. I've often said it, similar to the cult, like I would definitely, <laughs> if I wasn't in a cult, I would be, do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Bart, like in the future, had put on quite a lot of weight and he's like, I wash myself with a rag on us. Oh no, you will never get that bad, don't worry, no one around you will let you get to No, but that's the thing, nobody around me will, which is brilliant, <gasps> but if I was alone... I would oh. be this hag. I would be this hag. Yeah, I'd like to be a hag if I was alone. You know, I'd like to be interesting and have a certain je ne sais quoi around me. Absolutely. And showers are really boring. My brother-in-law laughed at me the last time I said that. He was like, how can you possibly say that? And I was like, they're the most boring time ever. Myself and my housemate in Galway, uh, Amy, we, um, we used to always come into the shower with each other and just sit on the toilet or the side of the bath. I get that. I understand that. I used to always have like the radio on yeah. and or now I'll play a podcast. I need something yes. on. And I was like, I'm not there forever, but I still like to have something happening when I'm doing the whatever. The necessities. Um, but getting back to this dirty old bitch, um, that isn't the only sinister tale associated with these macabre runes. It is said that the Count and Countess of Desmond took refuge in the Abbey when attempting to flee attackers. When attempted to flee attackers, sorry. The Countess was shot through with an arrow and believed dead by Count Desmond, who buried her in a haste in a makeshift grave. Except the Countess was not dead. Sightings of her menacing ghostly figure prompted an investigation of her grave where her finger bones were found to be worn out and ragged from clawing at the coffin lid. It's said a woman's panic shouting can be heard in the early hours of the morning across the valley as the countess cries for her husband to realize his mistake. You think he would have checked for a pulse? No. It's probably a flesh wound that he's like, she's dead. She's Bury dead. her. Dead to old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's like that local um, story my Uncle Tom told us last year. Yeah. Um, the rich woman of Harmon's Gardens, who uh, only for the fact that some person wanted to go rob her jewellery and cut her finger off to get it, that realised she wasn't dead. Yep. That's terrifying terrifying oh yeah i want like two postmortems and be buried with a mobile phone full battery with like some sort of signal improver or just go back to the bell 
just go back to the dead ringer. Yeah. Like it's fine. Yeah. Because you don't have to worry about signal there. Yeah. Okay. So for our last story, I have Augur and Battlefield um, and it's Jacobite Ghosts in County Galway. So if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, you may also be interested to know that Ireland has its very own White Walkers, the ghosts of the Battle of Aughrim. In 1691, a ferocious day-long battle took place between the forces of William of Orange and James II, who were vying for the crown of Britain and Ireland. Up to 40,000 men were involved in this battle. They also fought right beside us at the Battle of the Boyne. If anyone's keeping up with our stories of ancient east and everything that Drogheda and the nearby area has to hold. Yes. So initially the battle looked to be going the way of James's forces, which were known as the Jacobites, but fortunes reversed when General St. Ruth was horrifically decapitated by a cannonball and the Jacobites were forced to retreat. Ouch! Decapitated by a bloody cannonball! Um, William took <laughs> All I can think of now is decapitated by a cannonball. <laughs> yeah, Molly, do it for us. <laughs> so William took no mercy on the fleeing soldiers and they were rooted with a savagery that had not been seen before on Irish soil. In one day, over 7,000 men were killed on the fields of Algram. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of this, actually. It's the same battle that was the, it's all the same kind of battle as the Battle of Boyne, it's Battle of the Boyne. Yeah. 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 I have to say William of Orange is a savage. He's, a, he's like a bad winner. Do you know that? It's such a weird, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mad kind of story as well. Cause we did, we did a thing about it. Um, basically when I was in college in Galway, we had to go to the museum. We had to pick one thing to do a presentation on. And myself and one of the girls picked this gun money from James II, the person that William of Orange was having the battle with. So James II was this Catholic king Mm -hmm. who ruled over um, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And William of Orange, who, funnily enough, was his Mm son-in-law. And they had this battle. James II had all this gun money, which was like this money essentially melted down from guns and shrapnel and he was like look if you take this money I will honour it because I'm going to win this battle but we all know how that ended Jesus yeah because it was William's wife who was James's daughter was like if I can't take the royal title you know due to birth line then she's like you go take it for me and that's kind of like how it started well in a very loose way of saying but yeah Mm -hmm. tell you woman's wrath and all that oh but like our our history is steeped in women's wrath which is like <laughs> yeah you get it sisters yeah so back to this slaughter fest <laughs> sorry i was like let me interject with a little bit of history probably the no history that's I'm- brilliant because yeah you see you were in galway for was it three or four years yeah four years yeah so no it's nice for you to be able to be like well I have something to say. I know something for once. It's so rare that either one of us can be like, hang on, hang on, I know this. <laughs> no, you I go ahead. That's a word. <laughs> <laughs> so in one particular area of the battlefield that became forever known as the Bloody Hollow, 
collected a large pool of human blood that is said to have remained for days after the battle. The mangled and decapitated corpses of the Jacobites remained on the battlefield unburied for almost a year with the decomposing bodies becoming fodder for wild animals. Apparitions of Jacobite soldiers in uniform staring into the middle distance, just like the White Walkers, if anyone else wanted to get back to the start of that, um, are a common occurrence in the area. Many say their dazed and stunned ghostly faces still show the shock at losing a battle that was theirs for the winning. There is a general air of gloom on the site, particularly near the area where St. Ruth was killed, marked today by a stone Celtic cross. There is also the story of the ghost dog, one of the fallen soldiers had been accompanied into battle with his trusty canine squire. As the soldier's body decayed on the battlefield, his dog, his dog refused to leave, guarding his master's rotting body while eating the decaying corpses of the other soldiers. The dog's ghost is often seen sitting in the exact spot where his master was killed, and sometimes a forlorn howl can be heard across the fields of Auburn. Oh, poor dog. Why am I more caught up about the dog dying than 7,000 men? But in fairness, like I actually started feeling bad for the puka and was like, yeah. he's just a horse. <laughs> he just wants some fun. Get off his fucking land. He's a pony. He's fluent in Irish. But, you know, the poor dog. Yeah, I know. I'm just like, and then I was like, poor dog. Oh, he was eating off the other corpses. Eh. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there we have three stories and a great folklore story. Um, I really hope that this the trick-or-treat ones that we did, if anybody is Irish, that it might have sparked an interest in the spookier side of Ireland, because we do have, in general, a rich history and a rich history of folklore and stories, because it was one of the things we could always go back to was our stories. The Irish people are a great one for talking and of making up stories and poems and songs. We are, we're, we are like a, a people of storytellers, though. That Famous for it. Yeah, 100%. I've really enjoyed this series, Emer. Thank you so much. Um, no problem. This kind of came out of like that. It was the books you have, mm-hmm. a random book that I got, and it sparked instead of just one episode, just the entire month of Irish history. So, you know, we're speaking local. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and as well, very well done to Emer, who was um, on news talk two days ago uh talking about halloween and some spooky movies and um all going well she'll be on again tomorrow um on the lunchtime live show talking again about halloween and um if anyone wants to catch that uh news talk have their own podcast which i believe would we're no loosely about this um so i believe they would have their time slots so if you go on to news talk's podcast I think as well, it's all available on their website and you can listen live anywhere around the world. Yes, no excuses, people. Yeah. So make sure to be following us on Because You're Home with an underscore in between each word. And you can follow us on most podcast platforms. And if you listen to us on Apple, please give us a rate and review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you listen to us on any other podcast platform, feel free to tell a friend about us and have a very spooky Halloween this weekend. Read something Irish, people. <laughs> Eha sound. Woo. <laughs> Slan all you. Slan bitches. With the project. Boo. <laughs> <laughs>